Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. I do have the text there for you on your outline as well. For me, it's bittersweet when I come to the end of any study of Scripture like this. Uh, in my time as pastor here, I have nine, maybe ten books. I was just trying to think how many we have gone through together. But realistically, uh, before we'd have an opportunity to go back through Colossians, it'd be some time if we're going to cover the other 56 books of the Bible that are still remaining, most of which are much longer than Colossians. Leviticus alone will take us several years. So it's bittersweet a little bit to come to the end of this. I'm sure we will refer again to Colossians throughout our time and lives together in, in particular sermons from Colossians, no doubt. Uh, still, though, coming to the end of this study together of uh, several months now is, is comes with a, a little bit of uh, bittersweetness to it. What is your favorite verse of Colossians? Would you say, if I were to ask you that based on our study, would it be Colossians 1, 13, and 14? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of his beloved son. That'd be a good one. Colossians 1, 28, one of my personal favorites. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or perfected in Christ. That's a good one. How about those opening verses to your memory verse? Colossians 2, 8 and following. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's a good one. Verse 13 of chapter 2. And you who are dead in your trespasses, that's me, that's you, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The gospel there in one verse. How about Colossians 3? If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. How about that whole section of application we studied in Colossians 3, verse 5? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all the way. And then Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, etc. Powerful book. How about Colossians 3.17? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let us not forget where we have come from. So we have read this wonderful Christocentric book. We come to the end, the last verses of this letter of Paul to the church. And please note that even in the very last verses, there is particular, particular application for us, even today as a church, vivid application, helpful, healthy, teaching on the dynamics between ministers, congregations, and ministry priorities. Hear now God's word, Colossians 4, 12 to the end. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured of, in all of the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those, for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans 
and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful letter, this letter about Christ. This letter about how Christ is, in fact, preeminent, superior, sufficient. Help us, Lord, even in these last verses to recognize some key insights concerning the dynamics, healthy dynamics that should happen between ministers and congregations and congregations between congregations even and ministry priorities, things that should always be true of the church. Lord, I thank you for this and guide us and direct us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to these final words. And instead of taking each person and analyzing them uh, closely as we did the first five people mentioned in the greeting, I want to then rather take the principles that are revealed by what Paul says to these various individuals. He gives final greetings from people who are with him. He gives instructions concerning one who is with him, or a report, you might say. He also speaks an encouragement to one who's in the church of Colossae, and he gives a final greeting from himself. But taking all these things, which we have just read, let's uh, extract from this uh, five principles that we can see revealed concerning a healthy dynamic between ministers, congregations, and ministry priorities. This is timeless stuff about the church. Let's consider it as we see it revealed in Paul's relationships with these individuals who are his brothers and sisters in Christ, his friends. First, we can see very vividly through the person named Epaphras that there is an accountability between the congregation and its ministers. Look at verse 12 and verse 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, so we know Epaphras, by the way, we were introduced to him at the beginning of Colossians when uh, we realized that it's most likely that Epaphras is the one who came to Christ first and brought the gospel to Colossae. And then from his bringing the gospel to Colossae, the church was born. So he's one of the Colossians. So it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a Colossian, a servant of Christ Jesus. So now he's in the service of Christ, uh, as all believers in Christ ought to be. But he in particular is with Paul by his side, ministering. A minister, if you will, meaning servant. Servant of Jesus Christ greets you always struggling on your behalf. Even though he is not with the Colossians, he's not ministering in the Colossian church at that moment, he's ministering on their behalf by extension as he goes forth from that local body, from his family, from his home, and he ministers for them wherever God places him. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured of the will of God. So constantly keeping the Colossians in his mind by prayer, and we'll get to that in a moment. Verse 13, notice the accountability here. Paul is reporting back to his home church, who have sent him forth, most likely. For I bear him witness, in verse 13, that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. In other words, this man you've sent, who you've not seen for a while, you might wonder what he's doing. But he's working hard for you. You'd be proud of him. You'd, you'd be so excited to see what God is doing. Not only did God use him to start the church there, He's also using him along my side in, in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And Laodicea and Hierapolis are kind of the greater metro area of Colossae. It's a, it's a big area, though. They couldn't just take a one-day commute out to it. It's too far to go. But they're kind of sister churches, and just the geography of it would allow for them to pass through each other's churches at times. So there was some 
uh, there was some familiarity between congregations. And so he's ministering in these other places. And there's a report that I believe is an accountability report regarding Epaphras and what he's doing in these other churches. So that the people who raised him, the people who sent him, the people who first came to faith because of his ministry, they know what he's doing, how he's walking with the Lord, how he's being used of the Lord, how he is helping the church to expand. I think this just gives us an insight to the dynamics that have always been intended for the church. That the apostles set up what the original elders called and leaders of the church, but there's always been a plurality of individuals who serve to hold one another accountable and then report to one another about what they're doing. Because we need to do so. It's good. Accountability is good in so many ways. Think about how we try to exercise this. Most generally, you all know when we give to a missionary or we have them come, they share their their testimony with us of what they're going to do and we give towards it. Sometimes we send mission teams there to minister with them. And there's an accountability that happens there between sending congregations and the ones sent. Uh, we get responses from them. They, it, they're accountable to the people who send them. Uh, but we're accountable to them and the support of them as they're out representing us on the field. Uh, think also in terms of pastors. Uh, we are to be accountable to a plurality of leaders within the body and ultimately accountable to you, the congregation. You pick elders who hold one another accountable and you pick them based on spiritual qualifications. And then the elders serve alongside with the deacons and the deacons provide another level of, of brotherly accountability to this whole leadership team we have and then we're accountable to one another. That's the design. That's the divine, uh, that's the divine way God has orchestrated for us to be accountable to one another. So this picture is really, I think, timeless, and it meshes wonderfully with the rest of accountability that is spoken of in Scripture. Uh, every month, Nathan, myself, and, and Brian give the elders a report of, of our duties during the, the week or during the, during the month between session meetings. And it's not so much that the elders are standing over us waiting for a duty report, but rather as a mutual accountability, they can look at it and they can encourage us if we need to be doing more in certain areas. They can encourage us if we're doing too much in certain areas. And then there's a mutual accountability. So they just really know what's happening on a regular basis because they have their day jobs. And we're here. And they, they, they are also, though, called to be under-shepherds of Christ for this church. And so they have to know what's happening pastorally. And there's a wonderful, healthy accountability that happens when that is working the way it ought to work. It's been a great blessing to me personally. It holds me accountable uh, to consider how I'm ordering my time. Am I redeeming the time? And so forth. So accountability is built into the leadership is always and everywhere present in the New Testament. And we even see it in the Old as the elders come around Moses at times. Several other reasons why you might think of accountability as being necessary. Uh, personally, we need it just because sometimes we can fall out of discipline. But also mutual encouragement to hear what the Lord is doing as Epaphras reports. Colossae, who miss Epaphras, are excited, though, to hear what's happening in Laodicea and Hierapolis because of what their brother's doing there. It's mutually encouraging. And he's encouraged when he knows that the Colossian believers are upholding him in prayer and support and probably sending him some kind of support. Also, there might be needs that are known, uh, to need to be made known among the congregations. And this kind of accountability lets us know what is needed. And that's the beauty of sending a team to Juarez every year because we not only know the missionaries and the pastors there and the people in the churches, but we can go firsthand and know specifically what's needed there. Our repeat missionary trips are, are really, I think, the best kinds of trips. You know, the trip to Moldova. Every year we look forward to seeing uh, Maria, her progress, what's happening. And there's a connection made and accountability made, and we keep that up. And we send representatives who go on our behalf. A beautiful picture here for us. Accountability necessary between leaders and the congregation. And this is an effective way 
to minister and strategize. You know, strategizing comes when we assess the field and recognize where do we need to send more missionaries? Where do we need to build up the church here? Where do we need to start a new church there? And accountability between the congregation and its ministers is revealed as Paul says, I bear witness, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. But also we learn with these last comments, something else that's important, a priority for ministry, and in particular for ministers or servants, uh, and specifically here Epaphras, identified for service, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, notice what he does in his labor. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He cannot be with them all the time, but he can always lift them up in prayer and keep them in mind. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Paul mentions this, and I think it's a wonderful example of how Epaphras follows his mentor, Paul. Paul says in the beginning of Colossians, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. From what we understand, Paul never visited Colossae. He only knew them by extension. If he did visit, it was after this time. So he's able to keep them in the forefront of his mind as he prays for them. I know specifically for me, I became kind of overwhelmed. I think every young minister does. When you go to seminary, there's so much to learn and so much to do, but so much of it is just not particularly practical because you don't have the congregation that you are training to shepherd in your mind's eye to pray for. It's kind of nebulous. It's out there. It can be somewhat detached and impractical at times. It's not the fault of seminaries. It's just the reality. And I started uh, when I was in Bible college thinking in these terms of, of pastoring and what God would have me do as, as an under-shepherd of Christ. And so... From age 17 to the time I was 25 when I came here 10 years ago. 10 years ago. Don't smile too hard because Rico was in a baby seat when I first came, May 11th, 1997, six months old. How old is Rico now? 10-ish? Yeah. Wow. Anyways, uh, back to what I was saying. 10 years have gone by, but when I was 25 and I came here, I remember being somewhat overwhelmed by all that had to be done. And, uh, you know, this isn't our first building project. We've been through like seven of them. That class in seminary about building projects was really helpful. There wasn't one. There wasn't one about revitalizing churches that went through trying times, church establishments, small group ministries, Christian school promotion and oversights, leadership training, being a father, caring for a flock, hiring staff, managing staff, starting missionary trips, starting a missionary committee. Those classes I missed. They weren't there. And all of a sudden, it's all upon me. And I remember going to General Assembly and Lig Duncan, one of the, at that time, younger ministers in our denomination. And he said to the pastors in a special little seminar, you've got to get out from all the stuff and just remember these five things that are particular to your calling. And this is what he said. And just listen to what he said. And it's, it's helped me ever since I've been written on the wall, right? My family's picture, my computer monitor, my family's picture, and this, these five things are there. It's helped me hopefully emulate what, principle comes forth from Epaphras and Paul in verse 12 here. First, preach the word. All the other stuff, preach the word. Secondly, love the people. Thirdly, pray down heaven. Fourth, equip the elders. Five, promote family worship and religion. Those five things for all the busyness that my life may look like or my desk may look like at any given time is what I think of. It's constantly what I go back to. And the pray down heaven point wasn't as poignant to me then as it is now. It is now because if you're doing all these other things, you recognize very simply that nothing you do will give efficacy to it. So you've got to pray. You've just got to pray for this. 
Because it just, it, I feel so useless so often about what I do and what I say. I mean, more weeks than you can imagine, I go home thinking, I don't think anything probably got forward from them. And so I've got to pray that God would take the meagerness of what my offering is and do something for you. Because I feel responsible to some degree. Prayer for the congregation is a priority for ministers, for the leaders, for each of us, obviously, we're commanded throughout Scripture. But I really love seeing what Epaphras does from a distance and praying. And what does he pray for specifically? Because this must guide us as well. Notice what he prays, not just for general, Lord, please bless them. That's okay, it's important. But look at specifically, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Stand mature, stable, complete, understanding the will of God so that when life comes at you, you're still able to stand. Fully assured of the will of God, being so confident that God tells the truth, that God is the truth, that the word of God is your food, and that you are assured that it is God's word, and that the will of God ultimately revealed in the forgiveness of sins we have in Christ and his righteousness imputed to us, we stand mature, fully assured. That's the prayer Epaphras had for the people of God, and it's the prayer I must have for you. We ought to have for each other. This is also mirroring what, what uh, Paul said in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that is powerfully works in me. And please see, and I say this to myself often, when temptation may arise to try to do what the other guy's doing, it says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, and wisdom only comes from the word of God, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, I don't, do, I don't jump and do jumping jacks, I don't try to entertain you, we don't try to entertain, we try to teach so that you might stand mature and be fully assured. That's the prayer, the minister for the people, the servant of God for the people of God. But that is not all. In verse 14, we learn something else that you may not see immediately, and you won't see immediately until you decide or until you look and focus on the two individuals mentioned. It says very simply, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. What I would suggest to you is this principle being revealed by these two individuals mentioned here. Ministers... Leaders, elders, you might say, are in need of perseverance just like the congregation. Uh, in other words, anything you are prone to, we are prone to also, and maybe in a more magnified way because of the pressures that are there. Why? How do you get this out of, out of verse 14? Well, consider Luke and then consider Demas, and I think you'll have your answer. First of all, you probably know Luke is the writer of the Gospel of Luke in Acts. He was a physician. Now, I want to mention this as a side note. A physician in these days, like a physician today, if chosen, the chosen course is to get rich, they can. It would be very easy for Luke to do very well. He's very intelligent, and he had a knowledge of medicine, which was not widespread in these days. So he's a physician. We know that he devotes himself to traveling with Paul. So he at least doesn't have one established practice. Maybe he just traveled with Paul to take care of Paul in his infirmities and those who were traveling with him. So he, Luke is used of God. Uh, he could have had this profession that could have made him really rich and could have pursued all sorts of worldly things, but instead, he uses it for the service of God, and he becomes a very faithful brother to Paul and helps Paul immensely and helps us all because God uses him to give an orderly account of the things that God did. His mind and the way it worked and his training allowed him, unlike all the other writers and all the goodness that was contained therein, he is able to give an orderly account in Luke Acts that takes up the majority of the New Testament. Luke, not Paul, wrote the majority of the New Testament. These two books, verse, verses counted, account for more than even what Paul wrote. 
God uses him in a valuable, great way. And at the end of Paul's life, probably almost completely blind, there he is in prison, and he reaches out, and he feels who's next to him, and he says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him. You remember Mark and what happened there. What a blessed picture of perseverance there unto the end is Luke sitting with the almost blind apostle, and he's there with him. But there's Demas. Demas is mentioned also in Colossians. We see it here. Demas greets you also. We know in Philemon, he is mentioned among Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. But these most tragic words befall a once minister of the gospel alongside Paul as we read just a verse earlier in 2 Timothy 4.10, the old apostle says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In love with this present world. This is a love of materialism. This is a love of stuff. This is a love of the things that are temporal more than the things that are eternal to the point where you're blinded and you no longer take risks for Jesus. You no longer order your days based on what eternal purposes are there before you, but rather for, for what gain you can have in this moment. Paul warns against this over and over again, and Demas, it seems, falls prey to this, as any one of us can. Any one of us can. How do ministers get caught up into materialism? A shockingly relevant question for our day. I don't know, per se. I know it's, the seed is in my heart. I know the seed is in everyone's heart here sitting. And I know that it can come to full bloom, especially in the culture we are in. We have so much here. So much can be given. So much can be obtained. And no one would think otherwise. Everybody is. I can only say this. I appreciate so much the protection for materialism that basically has been afforded by the way our denomination has done it. I don't know that there's one particular way you could say it. I think so much of this is relative to where we are. And it's so relative to the heart of a person that they love Jesus more than they love stuff. I mean, this is true for all of us, but especially true uh, for ministers and people who are being given such a, a high, such a high responsibility with so much judgment attached to it, according to James. But what I have enjoyed in every PCA church I've been part of, and this one included, it has always been an issue of the eldership coming together in determining and setting particulars about what ministers get paid. Such a touchy issue, you know, uh, but the elders come together and decide this as representatives of the people. And deacons support the, the, the facts. This is what we take in. This is what we're able to do. And the, the elders together, and the elders have to determine what can they give that will allow the minister to do the work of the ministry being free from worldly care, as our call says, not having to go get another job, struggling all the time, yet not fall into materialism. And largely that's the responsibility of the elders. It should not be my choice. I should never say how much I should make. That should totally be a choice of the eldership. Weighing the body, recognizing the pastor and the family should be able to live with the body, not above the body. With that, see how tough that can be? But a godly group of men will do that and work in, and they'll love the man to the point where they recognize his weaknesses, and they may recognize that Tony cannot handle this or that. And how they go about helping me through that process that's part of their job and it, it's somewhat nebulous i recognize but do you see how it's a plurality of wisdom with utter transparency attached 
It's important. It's all important. I think in the American church more than others, I think there might be other issues that the church in China may be dealing with right now that the elders there have to decide with regard to upholding their ministers and discipling them. I think it's different in different places. I just think here, the major idol is materialism. It's the thing that, that seems to constantly haunt all of us. And so there has to be an extra effort. And you know what? It's true for ministers, but it's also true for ruling elders as well. I think those brothers have an even more difficult task in the sense that they have a certain uh, availability to grow themselves or to go out and get more. Uh, there's a certain safety I have in having a group of individuals determine a certain ceiling, if you will, or a certain containment. But for them, uh, there's going to constantly be that temptation. For many of you, there will constantly be the, the temptation to bigger, better, to get more. And that's just what you're supposed to do. Everyone's doing it. Christians are doing it, right? And you fall in love with the world, and before you know it, you're out of love with Jesus. Demas is a case study in what's so tragic but yet so real, I think, to any of our hearts if we really analyze close, but you see the damage it has done when one falls in love with the world and out of love with Christ, or at least more in love with the world than in love with Christ. Important ministry concepts here that are revealed in just what is said and the, even the names that are mentioned when you analyze them. But let's move on. If we look at verses 15 and following, you see that the mission of the church, really it goes forward through various partnerships Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. That's another local church. And to Nympha and the church in her house. We assume that may be a house church in Laodicea, but we're not positive. It's a church that the Colossians would know, though, and Paul's mentioning them. In verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea. There's this interconnectedness between the bodies of Christ, the local bodies that are represented, and there's this similarity of doctrine, of course, which is Christ superior. Things have definitely gotten more complicated over the years due to man's sinfulness and schism and so forth, but there still ought to be an interconnectedness among other local churches. Uh, it's great to start first with doctrinal agreement, and so we work together as a denomination, but we ought to also extend our partnerships and our cooperations anyways on the basic spread of the gospel with a larger group of folks. That's the partnership we have in Christ based on the word of God and our commitment to it. And Christ and Christ alone as Savior. I know things get complicated. We have to have a means to analyze, but recognize the way the church goes forward is not through separatistic hole up and be a holy huddle kind of mindset, but rather partnering and spreading the gospel in this way. Notice that... <clears throat> There is this encouraged interaction between the churches, but also notice that there is the need for lay people and congregations and, and ministers and leaders to be involved, everyone, not just apostles and ministers. Uh, the brothers are mentioned here. Nympha, this woman in the church, giving of her home. Whatever it is that you can do by the gifts God has given you, you're to bring them to Christ through the ministry of the church. Every one of us has something to offer to God. Some have more than others, but you all have something. And it takes everybody, not just the leadership. And notice this neat little kind of thing that comes to Paul's mind. Here he is writing the end of this letter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it dawns on him one verse before he's going to give his grand conclusion, and it dawns on him this young man, Archippus. I remember Archippus. He's a guy. Isn't he a guy that was supposed to go be a missionary? Wasn't he supposed to do this in the church or that in the church? I remember this guy. And what does he say to the Colossians? Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. One brother from the congregation is to be encouraged to act upon some understood mission that he must have known. 
Maybe he was, he was kind of being a Jonah and he wasn't doing what he's supposed to do. And Paul remembers to encourage. And there's this interconnectedness, this partnership, and there's this encouragement across church lines. That's one of the things I loved so much growing up. I grew up, uh, and when I became a believer and I started going to a Presbyterian church, I loved the connectedness of the other churches. And we would go to a summer camp sometimes, do youth ministry things together. And to have some of these other churches I didn't know as well see me on a, in a once or twice a year basis and give me these encouragements that I take with me. And there was an interconnectedness that just happened. And, and over the miles and over the years, we continued to stay connected. And, and words of encouragement went a long, long way to helping me fulfill ministry that I might have been too lazy to fulfill had I not been prompted in such a way. The church gets mutual encouragement from one another. And we see even a personal example is Archippus. I hope, by the way, that Archippus did this. You ever think about that when you read these? What happened to Archippus? I hope he'd listen. I hope that this really happened in his life and in heaven will marvel at what happened through Archippus. Each of us should be encouraging one another in this way. But also and finally, and it's so uh, poetic that it would end this way, uh, we already know from verse uh, 12 how Epaphras prayed that they would be fully assured of all the will of God, meaning the scripture would be so knowledgeable or so in their knowing that they would live it. But verse 16, Paul just says so candidly, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. When this letter has been read, it goes without saying that the epistle would be read publicly. All churches should have the epistle read in it, is what he's saying. And remember, this precious document comes to them on some kind of parchment, animal skin, or something of the like. And it's the only copy, so they get it and they read it and they... And they read it aloud. Every time people get together, maybe someone gets late and they got to read it again. And they read it over and they read scripture constantly. This is the letter. It's the word of God. It's our life's breath. It's our authority. It gives us all we need to know about life and godliness. Read it to me again, Paul. Read it to me again, leader of the church. And when you're done with it, bring it over there. But don't take it away right away. We want to hear it again. And then they take it because they've got to copy it before they can take it send it. They don't have a copy machine. So it goes to Laodicea, and they read it too. And there's a preciousness that comes with the Word of God read. And it's one of the saddest realities of all church life today that most churches today read very little Scripture in church. That it is so opposite of the picture the New Testament paints for the gathering of the church. I know we all have multiple Bibles. But clearly, there's something different when in the congregation we come together and we open with Psalm 98 as our song. And we pray prayers that are soaked with Scripture that we would hear assurances of pardon that don't come from Tony, but from God. And we hear and we read and we study and we're soaked with the word of God and that we would be given just a taste of it so we go home and read some more of it. That's the life of the church, central in the life of the church. It doesn't say specifically in this moment, pray or preach or exhort, just, just read it. There's so much power in it if you just read it. By the way, one of my great prayers still for the liberal church other than that God would shut the churches down if they don't repent, would be that in, by the mistake of their liturgy, when they come across some scripture that's still in there, that someone gets saved. and either leaves or really truly calls them to repentance. The scripture, I think, is that powerful. It can do that. The word of God must be central. This is why Paul in 1 Timothy says to the young pastor, until I come, devote yourself to all the programs you can muster. Build a, a really neat theatrical building. Please do this. In fact, put some really quippy ads in the newspaper and give out donuts when they come and name your sermons, all sorts of cool stuff. No, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. 
to exhortation, and to teaching. I'm not saying you can't do any of those things. But when they take the place, when that's what you remember, rather than the public reading of Scripture, something is really wrong. The Word of God is authoritative. We live based on what it reveals about God. It's our life's breath. In conclusion, we begin this great book with Paul starting with these words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you. And then he closes with these simple but powerful words. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And remember what he means is that he's in chains. It's a certain kind of house arrest. He was not in the kind of physical condition that would make him uh, someone who might be a risk to flight. But he had chains on him. And he sat in a place where he could apparently write. And he had someone else write it as he dictated. Maybe Epaphras wrote as he dictated because he couldn't see uh, but for this, for this final greeting, he wanted it to be in his own hands. And maybe it looked shaky. Maybe the handwriting looked different. But he reached across with that chain on his wrist, and he wrote out these final greetings. He said, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace, grace be with you. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful epistle, for this Holy Spirit-inspired work that we might have it as a timeless, endless reminder. And as we hide it in our hearts, even if someone stole the book, we'd be able to know your word. And I pray, God, that we would be transformed as a result. Lord, let us never forget this basic thesis of Christ, our life, and then the living out of that reality. I pray that would be true for each member, each person here, and that this world would be totally transformed by a people so solely committed to Christ and his superiority and his sufficiency that nothing else could happen but the glory of God in Christ. Make this so in our own lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us prepare for the Lord's Supper by singing 570. Let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2. 570.